the city's always undergoing a process of renewal of some form. To get it ready for the laptop crowd, which we expect to be coming over uh, on the transit system once the market has turned that way. I think we really should just look at um, world's best practice, which is almost the opposite of what we do in Australia. That was Professor Karen Chappell, Associate Professor Christian Rumming, and then Professor Peter Phibbs talking about urban renewal. Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers. And I'm Sophie Weber. And like other cities around the world, Sydney's urban landscape is being reshaped by new transit-led urban developments, the adaptive reuse of former industrial sites, and the redevelopment of public housing sites. Today we're talking urban renewal with Catherine Chappell, Professor of City and Regional Planning at the University of California, Berkeley, about what's happening in the US, and how the research data we collect can be used to inform the public and policy debates about urban change. But first, Christian Rumming again, from Macquarie University in Sydney, about why this is an important debate for Sydney. I think what's interesting for cities like Sydney now is that that first wave of suburban expansion is now sort of ripe for the picking in terms of redevelopment. So those middle and outering suburbs, um, perhaps the dwelling stock's not as good as, you know, the standard's declining a little bit and it's becoming something that can be redeveloped. In the city, it seems to be ongoing. Often urban regeneration has been targeted at sort of poor people and, and poor places. Um, you know, in, in many ways are seen as a magic bullet to try and fix up these, these places that have somehow uh, become dysfunctional. So how should we fix up these places? Peter Phibbs again from the University of Sydney. Uh, we'd want to engage with the local planners, we'd want to engage with the local community. And the question should be at the start of the process, what can this precinct do for the people of the city? What does this city need? One of the areas where there could be significant improvements is the inclusion of affordable housing within these developments. We could think of things like affordable housing, more open space, sure, we want some high-grade commercial office spaces, important, but we need to mix that up with other things that city's short of. In places like Sydney, urban renewal and regeneration are key ideas when it comes to long-term strategic planning. Urban regeneration appears in a number of different forms in those strategic planning documents, so quite often it is those big brownfield sites which are seen as, you know, key to this global city ideal. And it doesn't matter what city you go to, whether it's Barangaroo in Sydney or Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne, Elizabeth's Keys in Perth, these are all seen as major projects which will make these cities global cities in some way, shape or form. So if world's best practice is the opposite of what we do in Australia, then let's have a look at what urban planners are doing overseas and the role that ground-truthing the data we collect is playing in the process. Karen Chappell again. So many people conflate gentrification and displacement. They say, well, gentrification is displacement. As soon as you have this influx of capital and people, there's displacement. But in reality, the outcomes are very different in different types of places, in different contexts, and that displacement may not occur. And in the best cases, actually, 
for instance, where you have rent control and just cause eviction protections and, and ways for renters to stay in the neighborhood, in those best cases, there's actually not displacement at all. And research has shown that that in those types of neighborhoods with those policies in place, the low-income disadvantaged residents are more likely to stay. So you better tell us what those are. What What is rent control? Well, rent control is a means of regulating the amount that uh, landlords can charge for housing. And uh, do you have it in Australia? We don't have that particular policy. Oh, that's very interesting. I wasn't aware of that. So typically, you might need to have it, actually. So typically, what the the city um, or the state says, you'll be able to raise your rents according to inflation. So that might be 2% per year. And you can also raise the rents if you have to do some maintenance. So you have to, say, replace the toilet and then you can charge that to the tenant. But nothing else. You can't raise rents in order to make a windfall profit. The changes we've seen in the built form and social fabric of cities like Sydney, San Francisco, London and Vancouver since the Second World War have given us new academic and policy vocabularies. Words and concepts like urban renewal, regeneration, gentrification and displacement. And these ideas fit neatly with some older, but nonetheless resilient ideas such as progress, betterment and growth. Karen's been working in the San Francisco Bay Area in the US on a project called the Urban Displacement Project. And she's working at the intersection of many of these ideas. So we... It started with a research project for the state government in California called the Air Resources Board. The Air Resources Board um, is exactly what it sounds like. It regulates air quality. And so what does that have to do with displacement? Well, there was a concern that in uh, densifying our cities and integrating land use and transit station areas, so densifying transit station areas, that displacement of uh, existing residents was occurring. So the state had us uh, do a study to kind of figure out how do you know when you put in a new transit station how do you know what households are going to be able to stay and what are going to which are going to be displaced so we looked at that issue we um, we found it, it was quite complex um, in the end and in disseminating our findings we decided to slap it up on the web and so we got a website urbandisplacement.org we put interactive maps up online with our findings and that has really had much more of an impact than the typical on the shelf academic study could ever achieve So this idea of transport-led development includes, in many cases, an uplift in the land value, and this can have flow-on effects where people can no longer afford to live in a particular neighbourhood because their rents might go up, the businesses that are there might push up even the cost of living and their food costs. So you're interested in the relationship between displacement, gentrification, and transport nodes? Yes. And so, Dallas, you just gave a great explanation of urban economics and how <laughs> that works. So if you make a public investment, and, and not just transit, but also parks and schools and, and other uh, greening plans and so forth, that new um, investment, that new amenity is capitalized into land value and then gets passed on to the tenants who may not be able to stay. And I think that's been a really understudied part of gentrification and displacement. We've thought of it as private investment. We've thought of it as middle-class households. We've thought of it as, as hipster consumers. But what about the role of government? We often hear about the role of the private sector, the role of private landlords, and the purchasing power of individual real estate buyers in the gentrification debate. 
but Karen's interested in the role of the state. The role that the government has played in enabling and facilitating gentrification and the failings in addressing displacement. That's right. And, you know, I think in some ways we've tended to blame individual consumers because it's easy to do. And so we target the hipster. So we know him. He looks like a gentrifier. He has a beard um, and and, uh, no hair. Um, And sitting in the cafe complaining about the gentrifiers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Is the the stereotype. Exactly. Yes. And what a hypocrite he is. And we point fingers and um, say, we're we're not like that. Um, But really, this is this. this poor fellow is subject to a number of structural forces that you and I all experience, and and government and capital are allied in those uh, forces to mm. to transform. Tell us some cities. of the ways they're allied, the private and the public sector in this process in transport, particularly. Well, in 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 transportation, it, it, there's been a, a you know many many different studies have identified the growth coalitions that get transit systems up and running off the ground, and these are quite complex um, in and different. In, the players are different in different places. One of my favorite stories is in Bogota, where the the bus rapid transit system which is celebrated all around the world. That was actually driven by a bunch of bus companies that had put uh, in these systems, and some of them in Curitiba, Brazil, and and they were going around the world selling them, and they, uh, you know, persuaded the the locals in Bogota to do this. So bus companies are a big interest. The real estate sector is another, you know, obviously very big interest. Often you have uh, politicians who want to just accelerate growth to have more voters, and you have, of course, the fixed capital interests, the newspapers, the banks that are locally tied that are supporting these as well. And then now you have um, joining the coalition, the environmentalists, because this is a great way to get people out of their cars and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So, um, And that's actually um, made it possible, particularly in the United States, to push a number of new systems through. And they feel good. And it's great. And... Um, in many cases, uh, ridership is surpassing expectations. And this is after years, decades, really, of failure in the 70s and 80s. Now people get it. Now people are kind of interested in getting out of their car and into the transit system. So it's time to think about the impacts. And thinking about the impacts requires data, lots of data. And it's what we do with this data that's important. Karen and her team have built an online neighborhood early warning system a set of interactive maps that describe change in progress, and it even predicts future transformation. The early warning system is used by tens of thousands of unique visitors each year. The system is organised around a gentrification index, which characterises places that historically housed vulnerable populations, but have since experienced significant demographic shifts as well as real estate investment. It characterises the Bay Area neighbourhoods, basically census tracts, according to their experience of gentrification and risk of displacement. We've worked mostly with secondary data, census data and real estate data, which is often available in many different cities and countries to a different extent. So we've actually developed a methodology that we think anybody can do at home. We run the data, uh, you know, using this census data, which is on a neighborhood scale. But then what we've built into our whole process is what we call a ground truthing element. So we believe that 
that data has a great potential to be wrong or misleading. Um, so what we do is once we construct our indicators, we tend to take them to the community and uh, we show our maps off and we see how people take them. And, and uh, neighborhood groups often critique our assessment and point out um, very good you know, indicators that we have neglected to mention. So basically you get a big data set, you crunch that data, you make some predictions based on your reading and the, the methods that you're using, but that's not enough. Then you go and ground test this. So you basically present this information to the people affected by these projects and you say, does this feel right to you? Is that kind of what the ground truth thing is? Yeah, that's right. So we want to leave the interpretation really up to the to the locals. We want to help the, have them help mm. inform what we're doing. So what happens to the data then? Is it data for you to write up into publication or is it data that can be used for political purposes or is it both? Well, we try to make it work for both. It's a challenge often because um, the academic audience is interested in different things than the political audience and often they care much more about the significance of our statistics and <laughs> the politicians want to know what does it mean, what should we do? So we've tried to sort of do our regression models and submit papers in the background and then have a, and visualize our results so that anybody can, can understand it, anybody on the ground. And we found that that visualization is extremely powerful. And that was one of the biggest surprises of our projects is, is putting up our maps online and, and learning that um, our city council members actually check their phones while they're, while they're in their meetings and we're using our maps to make their case in, um, to, to the city council and to the public. And um, so, so who th else is using? Powerful. Who else is using? So we've got city councilors using the data. Yeah. Who else do you know of that's using the data? So we had we've had several different scales of impact. Our biggest impact, or one we're proudest of, is um, at the national level. So the national government in in the United States has, uh, for decades, promoted fair housing, and this is opening up the suburbs to have uh, allow more low income and disadvantaged residents to live there, and fair housing law due to our maps is now actually being enforced in the inner city as well as the suburbs because what we showed was that it wasn't just that uh, poor people couldn't move to the suburbs. It was that poor people couldn't stay in the city. So now the city of San Francisco and Chicago and Seattle are also looking at this. Um, they all use our maps to figure out who can actually uh, stay in the city and where, you know, where, who should have the right to stay. You're listening to City Road on 2SER, 107.3 FM in Sydney, and podcasting on cityroadpod.org. We're talking to Karen Chappell from the University of California, Berkeley, about urban renewal. And in a sec, Karen's going to talk about how her team's mixed methods approach to data collection shows that displacement often precedes gentrification. Hey, Sophie. Yes. Should we check in with Christian Rumming again to see how this discussion with Karen relates to Australia? Although one thing that marks the US as different from Australia is rental policy and the rent control policies of the US, which Karen discussed earlier. Yeah, let's check in with Christian to see how this works without rent control. I don't think you can say urban generation's 
solely positive or it's solely negative. Um, but yeah, there's, that's certainly one of the critiques of these projects, that it is a form of, of gentrification and that there is this displacement of, of disadvantaged groups. Um, and we've seen in Sydney particularly along the new metro lines, this play out where all of a sudden there is a new centre which is around uh, the metro and it's rezoned, you know. So uh, all of a sudden there are people that live around that new transport node that are, their, their value of their property has gone through the roof. Uh, we've seen processes of, of owners coming together to sell multiple lots to developers and real estate agents to try and sort of cash in, if you will, on, on this sort of process. Hmm. It's very interesting because we tend to think about infrastructure as neutral, but I guess what we're talking about here is infrastructure as political. If transport can cut people off from parts of the city and transport can evict people, then transport is not apolitical. It's a political activity. That's right. And then if today's transport is not the freeway that's cutting off the city, but instead the transit line, which is increasing the value of an area and bringing in newcomers from different parts of the region, increasing the connectivity of the area, then that's a very political decision. So what stories have you been telling with this data? One of the stories that we tell over and over again is about an inner ring suburb in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so if you can think of, maybe you can find an analogy for me in Sydney. This is a older suburb built in the 1960s on a transit line, now has a very, very large Latino immigrant community and still suffering from poverty. And so it's what people, an example of what people would point to when they talk about suburban poverty. So this, we went to this suburb and we took a look at it and looked at the numbers and we saw a decline. We saw a place that was getting increasingly impoverished and um, we couldn't find any hints of gentrification. And so we talked to the community-based organizations there working the Latino immigrant groups and they said, of course we're gentrifying. We're, we're crowding three and four families into a, an apartment here and because there's not enough housing because the, the hipsters are coming over and taking the, the good housing. Um, and our, so we didn't see that overcrowding in the data. And then we talked to a developer we were trying to find out whether his market was going down, like our data was saying. And he said, well, you know, it's true that I have a very high vacancy rate and I have fairly low rents. Yes, that's true. But the reason is I'm trying to empty out my apartment complex to get it ready for the laptop crowd, which we expect to be coming over um, on the transit system once the market has turned that way. And we asked him, when is this going to happen? He said, well, I'm thinking 15 or 20 years down the line. So this was a local story that we would never have known, that a developer is thinking 20 years in advance about his property and beginning to evict folks right now in preparation for the gentrification to, to come. So that turned around our view of gentrification displacement. Mm -hmm. Then we started to see, oh, actually the displacement is coming before the gentrification, right. not after. What does that mean for intervening in this process if the temporal timeline is so long? I'm just thinking about value capture 
to do with public transport systems in Sydney. So we have some contentious projects now where they're building new track. They want to value capture, but they've already got the plans out. The value's already gone. So what does this mean for trying to intervene in these processes, particularly when there's transport nodes involved that are planned over very long timelines? Yeah, it's very, very difficult and because the speculation is happening well in advance of what you and I know. So you really have to get in there early. And, and I, I tell my students, think like a developer. If you, want, if you want to do equitable development, think like a developer because we have to do value capture. We, that, there's a windfall profit going to all those property owners along the transit line. Um, and it might, might not be tomorrow, it might be 10 years from now. Um, but we have to be cognizant that we're spending public money and that's going um, into private pockets. So mm-hmm. we need to get recoup some of that. Value capture is absolutely the, the thing to do. But the question is, when can you do it and still make it work? Yeah. You said that displacement comes before gentrification. Can you explain that to me? Developers are thinking about their property in terms of when can they make the most money. They're thinking well in advance. And at least in the United States, they're dealing with so many different laws that are protecting renters. And you may not have that in Australia to the same extent. So they're working extensively ahead of time to figure out how they're going to make that profit down the road. And so they have to start figuring out how to get rid of the tenants pre- pretty early on. And then there's also um, di- so, displacement. So it's a work around the mm. rent control, really. It's to think uh-huh. the rent control is a barrier to realizing the value that I think should be extracted from this land. That's so right. I'll have a very long plan for yeah. getting rid of these people that are maybe rent controlled. And that's the displacement that enables the gentrification to exactly. take place. Exactly. And then there is a state-led version of this, and that's urban renewal, urban redevelopment, urban regeneration, whatever Mm. you want to call it, which is actually clearing out these sites actively and perhaps promising right of return, but not getting around to actually rebuilding the sites for 10, 15, 20 years. Which which is the gentrification I'm familiar Uh with, the kind of urban renewal gentrification. Right, right. Which we're seeing some interesting changes in somewhere like Sydney, where previously public housing tenants would be moved out, so they would be physically Mm. displaced. Now what's happening is just everything about their life is being replaced. So they get to remain in place, but their rent goes up, their cost of living goes up half of their friends move away, all their social networks are disrupted. So it's an interesting kind of change to what, to the displacement that we've been familiar with here. Yeah, it's it's sort of a softer displacement. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think it's more invisible. If you physically move someone, that you can see that taking place. But if you slowly replace everything about their life, but they're still in the same place, that's a kind of more insidious version of displacement. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well put. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to City Road. Dallas Rogers here again. So something a little bit magical happened in the studio when we were recording our interview with Karen. But to tell you this story, I need to introduce our executive producer of City Road, Miles Herbert. Hello, Miles. Hey, Dallas. So Miles works at 2SCR Radio here in Sydney, and he pulls all the strings in the background of City Road audio recording, editing, helping us script the shows, and asking me to ask less academic and more interesting questions, things like that. 
Anyway, when Karen turned up to do her interview, she brought along her young niece to the studio. While Karen was doing academic things like keynote addresses in different cities, her young niece was attending acting and singing classes in these cities. So at the end of the interview, I asked if she'd like to sing something for us on the mic. And Karen suggested the song Aaron Burr, Sir, from the musical Hamilton. So this is what happened. So... New York City. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends. Who's asking? Oh, well, sure, sir. I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. So, Miles, for those who might not have heard about the musical Hamilton, can you just give us, like, the lowdown on the musical? Well, in some respects, Hamilton is just another Broadway musical. It started back in 2015 and quickly became almost impossible to get tickets to. It is a musical history of one of America's founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, who pioneered the economic policies of the new American Republic. But as you are about to find out, Hamilton wasn't an ordinary man, and his musical namesake doesn't sound like an ordinary musical either. What? Smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. You can't be serious. Bringing together hip-hop, traditional American blues, and even dance hall. Off, wind up dead. What time is it? Showtime, like I said. Showtime, showtime, yo, I'm John Lawrence in the place to be. Two pints of Sam Adams, but I'm working on three. Hi. Colorblind casting in roles such as George Washington. Hamilton tells the story of America by and for the immigrants who built it. Said the revolutionary set. I came from afar just to say bonsoir to the king, the simoir, who's the best de moi. Bra, bra, I am Hercules Mulligan. I'm from the I used to heard your mother say, come again. Eh, look at your horse. It's a horse. It's used to heard your mother said, of course, it's of course. It's <laughs> no more sex. No me another roof, son. Let's say the couple more to the revolution. Amazing. So can we use that? We'll use a little bit. We'll sure. use a little bit of that to go out with the show. Are you? Are, are you listening to the music? The you just get yeah. it. It's, just good. it's it's honestly it's, so good. It's like, so good. It's so good.